morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten speaking to you from Ottawa, Canada. Um, this week in Jewish synagogues and communities throughout the world, we have a double portion. Two Torah portions uh, known in Hebrew as Chukat and Balak. And though I've introduced uh, previously uh, information about why we sometimes read a double portion, I want to offer the explanation again for new listeners or for those who may not recall, and to then uh, proceed with unpacking the second of the two parashiot, Balak. So the Torah, the five books of Moses, is split into 54 Torah portions in Hebrew known as parashiot. And we usually read one Torah portion each Shabbat. However, there are 14 Torah portions, 14 parashiot, depending on the year that can potentially be paired together. So two Torah portions would be read on that particular Shabbat. And that is what happens this week. There are a number of reasons why parashiot are doubled up. So let me give you a basic understanding. The basic issue is that although we split the Torah into 54 parashiot, a regular Jewish year has 353 to 355 days. That leaves us with 50 to 51 Shabbatot on which to read the Torah portion. Additionally, uh, when a Jewish holiday coincides with Shabbat, we read the special holiday regarding reading instead of the weekly Torah portion. This leaves us with a maximum of 48, but sometimes fewer weeks in a regular year in which to read the 54 Torah portions. Uh, in addition, um, during the Jewish leap year, we add an extra month consisting of 30 days, which includes four more Shabbatot. Thus, in a leap year, we have a lot fewer double portions. Um, so that's the basic understanding of why we have more Torah portions than we have weeks and why in some years we have seven double portions and in other years, we have fewer, three. Our Torah portion, as I indicated, is called uh, Chukat and Balak. It begins in the fourth book of the Torah, Numbers, with chapter 19, and continues through Numbers 25. I want to give you an overview of the parasha that we're going to be discussing this week, Balak, which begins in Numbers 22 and continues through Numbers 25. Balak, the king of Moab, summons the prophet Balaam, and some would say that he is a sorcerer more than a prophet, to curse the Jewish people. On the way uh, to cursing Balaam, is berated by his uh, donkey, who sees, before Balaam does, the angel that God sends to block the path. Three times, from three different vantage points, 
Balaam attempts to pronounce the curses over the Israelites, and each time blessings issue forth. Balaam also prophesies on the end of the days, and in a later com- in a later um, statement, seems to predate uh, the coming of the Redeemer. In addition to that, this Torah portion tells us that the people fall prey to the charms of the daughters of Moab and are enticed to worship the idol Peor, which is the primary deity of the Moabites. And when a high-ranking Israelite official publicly takes a Midianite princess into a tent, Pinchas um, kills them both, uh, which stops the plague raging among the people and is in the introduction to next week's Torah portion called Pinchas. So it is a Torah portion that offers us a wide uh, opportunity for commentary. Uh, our guest this morning is no stranger to our show and, in fact, is no stranger to Canada. Rabbi Daniel Michaelberg, who is the senior rabbi of Temple Israel in Ottawa, uh, grew up and was born in Vancouver, British Columbia, and uh, began his Jewish journey there in his home congregation. He was ordained as a rabbi at Hebrew Union College, and after his ordination, he had the unique opportunity to return to Temple Shalom, his home synagogue in Vancouver, as an assistant rabbi. In 2011, he became associate rabbi of Temple Sinai Congregation of Toronto and has been the rabbi of Temple Israel in Ottawa for the past four years. It's a Great joy that I welcome him back to Jewish faith and Jewish facts. Good morning, Rabbi Michaelberg. Good morning, Rabbi Garden. It is always a pleasure to be here with you. Well, it is always a pleasure for our listeners to learn uh, with you and from you. Um, so we're going to speak about this parasha, Balak, which is, interestingly enough, one of the few Torah portions named after an individual. And in this case, it named after an individual who's not part of the Israelite tribes. So let's begin. Do you have any sense about why we have a Torah portion that is named after a non-Israelite? Well, if you want the formal reason, it's because uh, the first words of the Torah portion are his name. But I'm going to go bigger picture. And how remarkable it is to witness in our uh, Torah stories, um, these figures who we actually only know very little about and who make very quick appearances, but in effect can really create a giant impact. And if we're trying to learn a lesson from that phenomenon in general, how often is it that a single circumstance, a single person who we might only encounter for a very short time span can in fact somewhat unexpectedly have a great impact. And we have that a number of times in our biblical stories. And, and here we have uh, Balak and, and Balaam and the famous talking donkey who are going to offer 
uh, a very important lesson um, in terms of how do we use our words? How do we see what's before our eyes? When do we lead with hope? When do we, um, when do our fears uh, uh, supersede? And what powerful lessons to learn from these figures who are going to be quick, but who are going to leave with us an essential impact. Um, so for our listeners, we should just follow up and indicate that um, when you speak about a quick appearance, neither Balaam nor Balak really appear again, other than in this Torah portion. Um, though Moabites might appear again, um, the individuals um, have this brief moment of fame, as you suggested. Um, we learn something from them and from their interactions with those about them um, and about the notion of faith and belief, um, and then they disappear. And I would also add, how often is it in humanity? that it is an outsider that teaches us those essential lessons that we have trouble learning from the inside. And so how important that in this case, it's a, a non-Israelite that is going to teach us these lessons about blessings and curses, about making sure that our eyes are wide open to what is before us, to the emotions that we have on the inside, and sometimes, as sometimes, you know, I often talk about how we, we tend to walk around in a slumber. And as we look to this Torah portion, if I was summarizing it in two words, it's wake up. And oftentimes, it's um, perhaps it's not the most PC word, outsider, that opens our eyes, that wakes us up to that which we are asleep to. Well, sometimes being an insider does cloud our vision. And we're so close to events and so close to uh, that which we're told is uh, essential that we can't see beyond uh, that which is right in front of our face, as the idiom suggests. So um, there are numerous aspects of this Torah portion. There, of course, is the call to uh, Balaam from Balak, and there is the initial... Um, interaction between Balak and the God of the Israelites. Um, and then um, we come to the story that we're going to focus on, and that is that Balaam accepts the invitation to curse the Israelites. Um, Balak is afraid of the power of the Israelites who are on their journey to the promised land and what they will do to his uh, Moabite kingdom. Uh, and so um, he invites this sorcerer to curse the people. And now we see that Balaam has begun a journey on a donkey. Um, we should point out that there's an unlikely um, similarity between Abraham, who makes a journey to Mount Moriah with his son Isaac um, on donkeys, um, but he's on a donkey, and help our uh, listeners understand um, why this is transformed from simply a story of transportation to something much more significant. 
So I'd say a few things. First of all, it's fair to say this little scene is funny and, and, and good for us to laugh and, and, you know, good for us to appreciate the role that comedy plays um, in our lives. When the outrageous happens, sometimes it, it offers great teaching <laughs> into our day-to-day practice. So here we, we, we see the donkey, and I, I think at first glance we would think, really? The donkey is going to play significance in the story? Um, and, 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 and in fact, all the more important that it's a donkey. It's not a grand horse. It's not a chariot. Forgive me to the donkey lovers out there. It's a really <laughs> quite lowly animal who we tend to generalize as not being so intelligent. And so here we have this scene of this prophet who is supposed to be able to see that which others cannot see, who is supposed to have these words that is supposed to be able to uh, be able to convey uh, uh, that which in this case, uh, he's commanded to, to convey curse, looking to, to bring damage and, har- and, and harm uh, to the people who are going to be the recipient of this curse. And everything is going to be turned on its head. And how often it's the case that things turn on its head, that here we witness this grand prophet who is summoned to offer curse, who is believed to have the power with his words to create great damage. And then we have this lowly donkey. And this lowly donkey is going to witness an angel of God who is going to bring uh, God's self before the donkey and before the, uh, the, uh, uh, the prophet. The donkey is going to swerve off the road because the donkey can see what the owner cannot. The prophet is going to be left totally confused, not sure of himself, what in fact is going on, so much so that the donkey is going to speak and the donkey is going to open up the eyes of the prophet and say, really, idiot, you can't see God's presence before you? I, the donkey, am going to teach you the prophet. And so everything we might expect, in Hebrew we say hafuch, is turned on its head, is made into the opposite. And how powerful that now this lowly ass is in fact going to illustrate to the owner who is the real ass. Let me read for the listeners the few verses that describe this directly from the Torah. Um, when he arose in the morning, Balaam saddled, um, and this English translation says his ass, and departed with the Moabite dignitaries. He was riding along on his she-ass with his two servants when the ass caught sight of the angel of God standing in the way with his sword drawn in his hand. The ass swerved from the road and went into the fields, and Balaam beat the ass to turn her back into the road. The angel of God then stationed himself in a lane between the vineyards with a fence on either side. The ass, seeing the angel of the Lord, pressed himself against the wall and squeezed Balaam's foot against the wall, so he beat her again. Once more, the angel of God moved forward and stationed himself on a spot so narrow that there was no room to swerve right or left. When the ass now saw the angel of God, he lay down 
And Bilam was furious and beat the ass with the six. So now we have three episodes. And then God opened the ass's mouth and she said to Balaam, what have I done to you that you have beaten me these three times? Balaam said to the ass, you made a mockery of me. If I had a sword with me, I'd kill you. The ass said to Balaam, look, I am the ass that you've been riding all along until this day. Have I been in the habit of doing thus to you? And Balaam answers, no. Then God uncovered Balaam's eyes. What a wonderful statement. He uncovered Balaam's eyes, and he saw the angel of God standing in his way, his sword drawn in his hand. Thereupon he bowed right down to the ground. The angel of God said to him, why have you beaten your ass these three times? It is I who come as an adversary for the errand is obnoxious to me. And when the ass saw me, she shied away because of me these three times. If she had not shied away from me, you are the one I would have killed while sparing her. It's a very terse but powerful uh, narrative. Um, so it says that the God uncovered Balaam's eyes. How do you uh, unpack what seems to be such a simple uh, biblical verse? I love this notion of uncovering, and it's a reminder to human nature that we tend to be quite stubborn. We tend to be quite stuck in our ways, that sometimes it takes the dramatic um, in order for us to reimagine where we are. We often find we're better for it when, when our eyes are uncovered, when we emerge from this place of being closed off. And here we have this dramatic scene. Um, the dramatic scene could have played much simpler, much in a much more simple way. Um, you know, maybe Balaam could have heard God's voice in the way that other biblical figures hear God's voice saying, Hey, your mission is faulty. Don't offer curse to these people. But instead, we, we, we witness really the dramatic. And, and in doing so, we could imagine that Balaam is going to be transformed. That at the end of this narrative, he is not the same person that he was at the beginning. He's better for it. And how often do we often have rather difficult experiences. I pray that, uh, you know, not on donkeys swerving off the road, but how often do we find ourselves in, in, in these jarring moments that finally wake us up, that finally uncover our eyes? I often say that God acts in less direct ways in modernity than in, say, the biblical day. And sometimes I joke, Rabbi, I'm sure you get the same call that, that, that people will say that, you know, do you have God on, you know, speed dial on your cell phone? And in fact, no, I, I don't have God on speed dial on my cell phone. And I feel that I'm connected in the same way that, that each of us are. Um, but I do think that we could even find holy um, in those experiences that leave us feeling um, ajar, that, that, that leave us uh, feeling upside down. 
Um, and the challenge, and we could learn from Balaam, the challenge is, is when we find ourselves swerving off the road, of course I'm talking symbolically, is to pick ourselves up and to determine how can we react in a healthy way. And how beautiful that this story, the literal curse, is going to be turned on its head and become words of blessing. How extraordinary to take these, these cynical words and turn them over and instead offer them uh, with words of love. So um, I know we want to get to that and uh, put some meat on the bones of what you're referring to, but I'm always struck, of course, by um, the repetition of certain motifs. And so here we have uh, Balaam riding with his um, donkey and two compatriots, um, similar to Abraham. And in the Abraham epic, it says that he opened his eyes. Actually, it says he lifted his eyes up. And here, to see Mount Moriah, um, did not know where he was going. That's in Genesis 22. And here we have um, Balaam uh, traveling with the same uh, cadre, and we're told that his eyes were opened for him, um, that they were uncovered. And of course, since we have many um, non-Jewish listeners, we certainly have the parallel here to Paul and his uh, coming to grips on um, a mode of transportation um, as his eyes are opened, um, the epiphany of Paul. Um, and I'm not saying that they're the same. I simply find it interesting that the motifs uh, reappear in a sacred literature and the notion that we can walk blind through the our daily experiences as you've so lovingly said and at some moment we are um, invited to open our eyes um, and perhaps to see blessings where previously we had seen curses or to reassess that which we have taken for granted. Um, and given how many times um, Balaam and, and um, the Israelite deities speak, um, it seems like there are numerous chances for humanity in this story to have a recalibration of its relationship to reality. Um, now, you alluded to that the story ends with a very powerful blessing, um, and it's a blessing, as you will share with our listeners, that ends up being part and parcel of the daily worship service. So what a strange ending to an even stranger beginning. Um, share with us about that blessing. Sure. So look, here's this Balaam. He's commanded to curse. And what words of curse are going to come out of his mouth? Ma tovu ohalecha, mishkenotecha Israel. Um, translating it in English, how wonderful are your tents, your dwelling places of Israel. And the ancient rabbis really look to these literal words and expand this notion of tent. We're reminded that 
of course, there are those physical homes that we live in that, uh, you know, a roof that uh, offers cover and shelter where we sleep, where we eat. Just as important, the spirituality, the values, the people who we welcome inside. And so the prophet Balaam, in his closing words, not of curse, but of blessing, are going to open our eyes to the blessing of the home, open our eyes to the dwelling place, and remind ourselves of the potential. How do we fill the home? Do we fill the home with curses? Or, I hope, do we find our way to make sure that the home is a place of blessing? And as we think about the Israelites who are on their journey to the promised land, who are going to be setting down roots, it's the hope that their home is one that is bright, not dark, that their home is a place that will glow, that will beam forth, that will be an inspiration to nations all around. And how ironic that these homes for which the prophets sought to cast doom instead are going to be a place that are going to offer inspiration. It's quite beautiful. Um, I'm certainly struck, as perhaps some of our listeners are, with the unusual notion that these words um, spoken by the non-Israelite sorcerer prophet, however we understand, um, end up being part of the liturgy. And while there are uh, other biblical um, verses that become part of the liturgy of the Hebrew people, um, this one seems to stand alone, it strikes me, um, as having been the prayer of the um, person who is not uh, charged by God to repeat these words to the Israelites, but in effect is charged by God to uh, uh, repeat these words to the world at whole. Um, It's very much um, in keeping, I suppose, with the notion of um, the unique relationship that the Israelites have with their deity. And if we're going to look at that big picture, with our opening words, we're reminded, make sure your doors are wide open, make sure that you welcome in both the literal stranger as well as the wisdom of the other. Uh, keep, your, keep yourself attuned to, uh, to be awake to the potential, to the promise around you. This is when our tents, this is when we, we can be proud of our havens that are full of light. And of course, that opening tent, um, either in the sukkah or in the chuppah at the wedding, are so uh, much a part of Jewish tradition. My guest this morning has been Rabbi Daniel Michaelberg of Temple Israel, Ottawa. I want to thank him for offering us such great wisdom about this parasha. You can hear our show on CHRI 99.1 FM or on chri.ca as a podcast, or download it wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten, wishing you shalom, and thank you for listening. Have a good day.